But no, we're glad to have you here. Uh, Going to be talking about the, uh, the theology of the church, uh, particularly from, from a perspective of systematic theology. And so I've been excited about this teaching uh, since, since we kind of laid it out over the summer. This is going to be fantastic. And, and while I ducked your questions last week, uh, if you'd like to put up questions, we have Slido. So if you go to your phone or your tablet and put in slido.com and then type in the room number 086002 which is up on the screen, you can ask questions. You can also like questions. And so if there's a question somebody else asks and you like it, it'll move it up to the top. And so we'll be able to, uh, be able to kind of see what the, what the questions most people have. And I uh, appreciate doing that. And it, it leads to a really cool, really cool dialogue. So I don't think there's any other church announcements. We good? All right. Let's pray and get started. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word, Father, for the truth that in all this kind of swirling chaos around us, we have a firm place to stand, that we have a firm place to grasp, that we know that Christ, right, is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we celebrate that, Father. We celebrate that tonight. Uh, open our hearts and our minds to your truth tonight, Father, and change us. Anytime we encounter the truth, Father, we should walk away different. We should walk away more Christ-like. So open us to your word. Open us to your truth. Anoint Jay for this teaching, and it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you, Brian, and good evening. Yeah, thank you for braving the weather tonight. Glad you are here as we are just getting in the swing of another semester of Coffeehouse Theology. If you didn't grab one, there is a handout on the table back there. Uh, and so uh, with uh, a lot of material to cover, uh, the more I have to talk about usually, the more I try to write down so I don't wander as much. But it also keeps you guys from having to scribble notes as fast as, as you can. Um, as Brian mentioned, we're kind of continuing this theme, We Are the Church, coming back from covid uh, as we have been grappling with just changes and uh, adapting to the new realities as, as a church, lots of new people in the life of our church. We've wanted to be intentional uh, last spring to introduce you to some of the amazing people that God have, has brought to Station Hill. Uh, and then this fall, we're spending these first couple of weeks foundationally. So last week, Brian taught out of Ephesians 4. Uh, if you didn't catch that, you can go back and catch the podcast. Uh, you can get that on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, any of those kind of things. And then tonight, as Brian mentioned, we want to do a little bit more of kind of a system theology kind of overview of like, what, what is the church exactly? Uh, and then next week, we're going to move into three weeks focused on gospel conversations. Uh, and then we're going to follow that up uh, with some, some, a couple of guest speakers. And uh, so we're kind of doing the semester in kind of smaller chunks. Sometimes in the past, we've, you know, taken a whole book of the Bible, unpacked it, and we'll probably do that again in the future. But uh, feedback has been really good from you guys about, uh, yeah, let's, if we focus on something for three or four weeks, that's helpful to us. So a friend of mine posted this on social media. She saw this uh, on one of our community pages. Whether it's a joke or not, I don't know, uh, but it's going to help prove the point of where we're going tonight. So this is on one of our local, I think it was a Spring Hill or Columbia area uh, Facebook page, one of the like I Heart Spring Hill. If you want to be entertained, that's a great Facebook page to watch. Uh, but it says this, I'm looking for a church that has really great parking, but like not too many parking rules, excellent coffee, like none of that, you know, off the shelf stable creamer stuff. Music that's good and probably has some celebrity musician on stage each week. And most likely the worship leader wears skinny jeans and a little hat. But he also doesn't have tattoos, but not like fog machine trendy and not too loud. 
I'm looking for a funny pastor who teaches like actually from the Bible, but who can do it in a super entertaining way that doesn't make me feel bad, but not overly good either. And comfortable chairs that have armrests so the people next to me don't get too close. And I'm looking for a youth group that teaches my kids all the stuff I don't want to teach them, but that doesn't teach them what I don't want them to know about either. And children's church that doesn't need volunteers and always has plenty of room for all the kids without overcrowding the classrooms and has great gluten-free, dye-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, paleo snacks for my kids that they serve immediately upon arrival so that they are hungry for lunch by the time I pick them up and not still full from their snack. And greeters that know my full name before I arrive. That's my favorite one right there. And also a location that's convenient to me, but not in a huge building because that's not how I want them to use the money that other people give them. Did you catch that at the end, right? The money other people give them. And then she adds this, any rude comments will be deleted. So I commented on my friend's post. I said, now you know what it's like to be a pastor, right? I mean, that accurately describes really sometimes the way that you feel. Now I say that a little bit in jest because as I mentioned to you before, I I brag on you guys all of the time. Uh, I feel like uh, I pastor a great church. And by that, I don't mean the building, which is fantastic. We have great facilities to use as a tool. Uh, And I don't mean the programs, which we have a team that runs some great programs and activities around here to connect people. But what I mean by I pastor a great church is you guys, the body of Christ. Uh, And so I honestly, as a pastor, I don't have to deal with a fraction of what a lot of my pastor friends do, but I do hear it all. And and the reality is, is we do have an identity crisis in the modern church about what the church is, particularly the the church uh, in North America. And so tonight, what I want to do is just kind of, again, kind of systematically look at a a long form definition of the church uh, after we do a little digging in scripture and talk about biblically what a church is and what a church isn't. Uh, And so if we think about church, again, we all have our preferences, we all have what we appreciate, but if we're really honing in biblically, what, what is a church? And so I put here in the handout, right, the much abridged story of the church. And a quote from one of my favorite books on the church is The Living Church by John Stott. He says, the story of the Christian church is stunning. A handful of Jesus's followers have become two millennia later, a global phenomena of a few billion people. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I want to spend a few moments there as we, we kind of jump in tonight. By the way, it says Mark 16. Just so you know, if you look at Mark 16, 18, that's the passage about handling snakes. So that's not the place like that we go traditionally. So that is a misprint. I carried these notes over. Uh, and so some of you were like, whoa, where are we headed tonight? What kind of church have I walked into? Matthew chapter 16. Uh, yeah, you check your Crufts references all the time. I was just seeing if you guys were awake tonight. All right. So in Matthew chapter 16, you have the scene where Jesus has gone to a place called Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. Now, if you know anything about that part of the world at the time, you'll know even the name Caesarea Philippi tips you off to something. That's not a Jewish name. And so what Caesarea Philippi was, is it was an ancient place where there had been generations of pagan worship that took place there. Uh, I've been there in person. It's pretty amazing to see because they've got, you know, temples that were created during the the pagan period of kind of the Old Testament to the very northern edge of Israel. It's a beautiful area. It's called Banias. And so it's got waterfalls. As you know, much of Israel is very arid. And so you've got the the runoff from uh, Mount Hermon that's coming down there. And so it became a very popular, basically, vacation spot. 
And by the time of Jesus, it was a place where Roman soldiers and their families would vacation. It was somewhat Las Vegas-ish in the sense that it had temples to the various gods, and they would go and they would have their parties and their festivals. And when you even read that, that Jesus took his disciples, these good Galilean, you know, Bible Belt boys, basically, to Caesarea Philippi, that would have been like, Jesus, what are we doing? Where are you taking us? As they, they take the hike up there. And so there is the setting for this scene. And so as Jesus is talking about this in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples against this backdrop, various temples to various gods, Greek and Roman gods, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And that's so important that Jesus presses them personally on that question. And we get Simon Peter's confession. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but by my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. There's the word, ecclesia church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And so you have Peter's confession that Jesus is Lord. And there's all kinds of interpretations when Jesus says, you're the rock, right? Well, he's talking about Peter. Is that the guy? No. (laughs) What he's pointing to, the rock is Peter's confession. That's what he's going to build his church on, the truth that he is the Lord. And so that is foundational to the life of the church, acknowledging the lordship of Jesus, who he is, the Messiah, the promised one, the son of the living God. So when Jesus says he builds his church, he builds it on truth. He builds it on the foundation of who he is. And then he commissions them, as we know, if you fast forward in the story, uh, after his resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, I don't have to read it because it's familiar to many of us, but he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So just as Jesus had poured into Peter and the others to the point that they all agreed with that confession, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one, you are the Savior, the Son of the living God. So they were commissioned to go out and be disciples who multiplied disciples. And when you think about it, it's pretty audacious that what Jesus did was not leave an institution. What Jesus did was not build an army. What Jesus did instead was to trust 11 at that point, everyday, ordinary, unschooled men, as it says in Acts chapter four, with the most important mission the world had ever known. And that was his plan with no backup. And so he had poured into them to the point that he trusted that that would happen. But of course, they weren't gonna do that in their own strength. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power on high. And so in Acts 1.8, we see Jesus tell them, you will receive power. What's gonna fuel this is not you in your own strength trying to carry out right, the spread of the gospel, but instead you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. You're gonna tell my story and you're gonna do it where? In Jerusalem, hometown. You're gonna do it in Judea, regionally. So for us, that would be Middle Tennessee. You're going to do it to Samaria. That was a hated cross-cultural people group by the Jews. 
Translation, you're going to be charged to carry that message to people who don't think like you, to people that you have centuries of animosity with. You are going to be called to humble yourself and bring the good news to people who are very different than you are. And ultimately, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And that literally becomes the template for the entire book of Acts, where we see the first several chapters about the gospel going to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to what they knew at that time was the ends of the earth. And so one of the amazing things about what Jesus said is that it happened, is that it happened exactly in the way he predicted, exactly in the way that he called them. So to summarize, this seems like a rather delusional promise for what was, including the disciples and a few women and a few others, about 120 120 otherwise pretty ordinary people. But when that power came at Pentecost, 3,000 who received his words and were baptized were added to the church. And the early church became radically devoted to Jesus first and to one another second. And the Lord added daily, as it says in Acts 2, to their numbers, those who are being saved. And so from there, the good news spread exactly as Jesus said it would, until in just a few years, the message of Jesus was proclaimed all over the Roman Empire. My favorite commentary in the book of Acts, if you've been with us a while, you know, is called 30 Years That Changed the World. Pretty remarkable to think about how the gospel spread all over the Roman Empire like wildfire in just 30 years. So the gospel spread. It was passed down generation to generation. At some point it came to you and it came to me and that's why we're sitting in this room tonight. And so fast forward today, just for comparison purposes, and the common perception of the church is vastly different from what it was then. Dave Kinneman, who's a researcher, used to be with Barna Research Group, wrote a book in 2012 called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And his research was on young Americans, mostly millennials, what they perceive the church and, and reveals what they think and view the church as. Number one, anti-homosexual. That was the first thing that they said when surveyed, that, that that's what they knew. And so here's the idea and the concept that just general young people in our culture knew more what the church was against than what the church was for. And we had failed to live out and share the message in such a way that, you know, the first thing the church should be about is what? Jesus, like that's what we, they want, you know, that's what we want them to say. But far from that, right? Number one, 91% of our young adults said it was churches anti-homosexual. Next one, 85%, hypocritical, hypocritical. And what's fascinating to me about that, if you've heard me teach on the Sermon on the Mount, is to know that Jesus himself gave us the word hypocrite, ironically. And so when people call us hypocrites, Jesus himself coined that term. There was a Greek theater just a few miles up the road from Nazareth. And in Greek theater, you would have one or two actors who would run the entire play and they used masks. And so the name of those actors, hypocrites. And so Jesus coined that term in the Sermon on the Mount talking about those, right, who put on a false face, who put on a false front. And he said, don't be like the hypocrites. And ironically, a label that Jesus gave us as the world is now the label that has been turned against his own people because people feel like Christians by and large are inauthentic, that they are hypocritical, that they wear masks. Next, old fashioned, okay, 78%. Number four, out of touch with reality, 72%. Insensitive to others, 70%. And boring, (laughs) 68%. Now, again, This is one study, but in essence, they see the church as very unlike Jesus. 
That's what's convicting about the study. So how, how did we get there? How do we get back? And Stott says the answer is simple, a simple, humble, and continual return to Scripture to rekindle the love of God the Father, the life of God the Son, and the leading of God the Holy Spirit in order that we would be the church for the sake of the world to the glory of God. And so one of the things that we have to work hard to recover and to redefine in our era is an understanding about what church is. I feel like in the evangelical church, there have been some gains made in our generation when it comes to recovering a high view of Scripture. And do you know what I mean by that? It's believing and trusting that Scripture is truly the authoritative voice of God, speaking through His Word to His people. Previous generations, you know, critical theory, linguistic theory, all of these kind of things begin to creep into the church. And there has been a swing back in some traditions and denominations to say, no, we believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy word of God. And so we've made some gains in that area, high view of scripture. The other thing that we recognize is that we need to hold uh, to a high view of the church. Why? Because the New Testament itself holds to a high view of the church. As a pastor, I've heard countless times. I'm sure you've heard it from some of your friends and family as well. I don't need the church. I just need Jesus. Well, here's the reality. The church is the body of Christ. They're not designed, right, to be separated. And can you have a relationship with Jesus and know him as Savior and be disconnected from his people in theory, but that's not the way he designed it to work. And it's certainly not healthy because why? We're not designed to grow in isolation. So turn with me over to Acts, and we're going to spend some time bouncing around in a few passages of Acts. Very familiar passage at the end of Acts chapter 2. Because this lays the template for God's people and for his church. So at Pentecost, Peter gets up, infused, right, empowered with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches the first truly gospel message after the resurrection. At the end of that, in verse 36, he calls for a response. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, both Lord and Messiah. So Lord there is the Greek word kurios. So that speaks to the Greek speakers. But of course, Messiah promised one uh, from the Old Testament for the Jews. And that was primarily his audience uh, at this moment in Pentecost. But remember, the nations were there as well, hearing this in their own tongue as the Holy Spirit enabled them to do that. And so when they heard this, it says in verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's where you and I come into the story, by the way. Praise God. Right, we're there. We're in Acts chapter 2. That's us. As many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he strongly urged them. So we don't have his whole sermon here, right? But we have this part saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And as we mentioned already, and that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And so now the gospel bringing them together, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with all and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day, 
They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people, of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And so unified in the gospel, brought together, they genuinely did life together. And this was the seedbed of the church. And so we need to have an understanding of what the church can be fueled by the conviction that it should be based on scripture. Is the church perfect? No. As has been said, and I put this in your notes, the only perfect church is the heavenly assembly. And this does not meet at 1030 each Sunday, a short drive from your house. So until you're called to join the throng around God's throne, you are called to belong to a church in which others will get things wrong. And by the way, so will you. It doesn't mean that we don't have a standard or a high view of the church. We recognize that the church is imperfect. Why? Because it's made out of imperfect people like you and me. People who are right, struggling in our sanctification. People who are doing battle with sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Uh, there's things that we know we don't want to do, and yet we find ourselves doing them. But we, we're doing that together. And what the Bible gives us is a beautiful picture of what God's church can be when it's fully devoted to one another, the scriptures, when it's fueled by the Spirit, and when it's living on mission. And that's the picture that we should strive for. And so the best way to redefine for a watching world and a generation what the church is is not with our slick marketing campaigns. It's not with what we post on social media, right? Heaven forbid, you know? So, but what, what it is, is a return to scriptural principles and the truth and the foundation upon which the church was built in the first place. And so tonight, I want us to build a biblical definition of church. What church is not is these things. And some of you will notice these words are underlined. I used to make you guys fill in the blanks. So I don't do that to you anymore, right? So I'm just trusting that you're awake and hanging with me. Uh, but uh, anyway, just it was taking too much time, those kind of things. So that's why those words are underlined. But it is good for emphasis. What a church is not, of course, is a building in which spiritual meetings and activities take place. I tell you all the time, we don't go to church. We are the church. But never once in the New Testament is the church referred to as a place, we don't ever go to church. That's never mentioned the way we talk about it most often. So sometimes I do find it, you know, when I was a youth pastor with my own kids, it's clarifying. We're going to the church building. Or as the old timers used to say, we're going to the church house, right? Uh, you know, just to clarify and just to help build that in, that the church is not a building. It's on a, also not just a weekly meeting where people gather. Gathering is part of what we do, and it's important. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to not forsake the assembling of the saints, because we need to you know, encourage each other, build each other up daily. It talks about the fact that we need to urge each other to live out the mission. Uh, but meeting is not all that church is. It's also not just a moral society of people who are seeking behavioral change through moralism, motivation, legislation, etc. That's what you know, the, the mainline church experienced, the downfall of the mainline church in the, in the 20th century, was it just became these kind of social clubs that were people were there mainly to get together and to try, try to you know, do good things, but it became devoid of the gospel. That's also not what the church is. So my favorite definition of church comes from, and I'm just going to go full transparent here, a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll, who you might have heard of, and a theologian by the name of Gary Brashears. Mark Driscoll infamously was the pastor of Mars Hill Church, which was a pastor in Seattle. There's a podcast out right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, that talks about how that church blew up under his leadership and teaching, was one of the first churches to really take advantage of the internet age and podcasts and all of these things. Uh, and a lot of his teaching was biblically very, very solid. 
And again, he worked with theologians, but the sad part was, was that his leadership was not submitted to the church's elders and to accountability. And so the church went off the rails. Uh, and so he had to step down from leadership in that church. However, this definition is the best, thorough, most biblical definition that I have been able to find. Uh, and so it is solid and that's why I still use it. He says this, and we're going to break it down. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion, are unified by the spirit, discipled and disciplined for holiness, and then they scatter to fill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. Anybody got that memorized already? No, okay, yeah, right, it's long, but, but, but I like it because it's thorough and that's important. So let's unpack that a little bit, these characteristics of a, ch- new, uh, of a true church. Number one, the church is made up of regenerated believers. That means people have had an authentic encounter with the gospel. They have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the true church. It's important that we state that because we need to remember that a lot of the people who have sometimes the loudest voices in our churches do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In some churches, I have a friend in England who went to pastor a church, a historic church. It was a city center church in Stockton, England. And as he went to go pastor the church, the church had a board, had a council. And so as he began to meet with them, he began to realize as they began to talk about, okay, here's what we're gonna do biblically. And a lot of them had a lot of pushback to that. And so finally, the Spirit convicted him, and he asked each one of them their testimony. Out of eight board members in his church, six of them were not even Christians. Why are you on the board of a church? It's a historic church. They do good things in the community. But he was like, therein was the problem with the church. We've got to start with our leadership actually being followers of Jesus Christ. And and you think I jest, but that's more common than we believe. Billy Graham himself during his ministry said in his experience, 50% of the people at his crusades who got saved were churched people. So for him, that translated to the fact that 50% of the people in the pews of our churches are not saved. That was his estimation. And that was a generation ago. And so we have to remember that. And so there's a calling on us as a church, and it's why we're intentional through our membership process, many of you have been through that, to be sure that we hear your testimony, because we want to hear that credible witness. We want to hear you testify, Acts 1, right, to be a witness to your experience with Christ and why you are a believer. That's where we begin, because before you become a member of our church, that's key, that you are a Christian, And then, of course, baptism is that next step, and we require that for membership as well because it is a picture of obedience to Christ. Baptism doesn't save us, but is a picture, an outward picture that Christ commanded of the inward change in our hearts. And so that's where we begin, and we need to recognize that, that a large part of the revival that needs to come to the church in America would happen if people in our churches would get saved. And so that's why I never underestimate the power of the gospel. There's a man in our church who is a gifted Bible study leader and teacher. He has pastored several churches, but he went to seminary. He became an associate pastor of a church in Texas. And one night on a Sunday night service, as he's preaching the gospel, he became so convicted that he went home, got down on his knees and asked Jesus to be his savior because he realized he had never truly done it. His name's Ken Parker. 
and he teaches one of our Bible studies here. And so Ken had the courage and he said it was a hard conversation with his wife that night to say, honey, I just got saved. And she said, but you spent four years in seminary, you know, you've been hired by this church. Like what if the pastor fires you or what if the people reject you? And instead, of course, it was a beautiful picture. The opposite happened. A lot of other people got saved because he got up the next Sunday and shared that testimony. And a lot of them said, I just been, I've just been going through the motions as well. And Ken went on to have, he had a brilliant career in ministry, working for Lifeway, pastored Oak Valley Church off Lewisburg Pike before he retired and joined us here at Station Hill, him and his wife Kay. But in other words, don't ever underestimate, right, the power of the gospel to save people who are going through the motions of what I would call religiosity or churchianity. Number two, the church is organized under qualified and competent leadership. Did you notice even there in Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. And so who do we look to for authority? We look to those who have been with Jesus, those who are first generation witnesses to the things that he taught. And so ever since then, right, the church has been organized around the word of God. And, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on church polity tonight. You can pray for us. We're actually looking at that. I'm chairing a team for all eight of our campuses that's looking at our, our church polity and how we need to tweak that to move into God's future for us. But the, the beautiful thing about the New Testament is this, is, is that we are told what type of person needs to lead the church, but the emphasis is much more on the character of the person than the form of the governance or the structure that's taken. There's guidelines and principles that are clear, but it's brilliant. The emphasis is on the heart of the leader and their relationship with Christ and the way that they live that out. And then there's freedom in the New Testament to adapt that to the local church setting. It's why some churches are congregationally led, others have elders, others have board, those, those kind of things, because the New Testament doesn't prescribe, right? Here's exactly what your local church needs, but it does say this, it's got to be led by qualified leaders, who know Jesus, who know his word, who teach his word, and who live it out in their homes and in their communities. And so we find those passages in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about the qualifications for elders, who I would argue, right, they are the leading servants in the church. Then it talks about deacons, who are the servant leaders, another dimension of that uh, ministry, but uh, more focused on pastoral care. And so the Bible certainly gives us guidelines and principles, but every church has to choose how it needs to organize under qualified and competent and character-driven Christ-like leadership. Number three, the church regularly gathers, again, gathering is important, to hear God's word rightly preached and to respond to God's revealed truth in worship. Again, the pattern of the early church. And Jesus himself said in John chapter four, right? The day is coming when you will worship in spirit and in truth. And so those two elements have to be present in our Christian worship. And believe me, as a pastor, there's probably nothing I get more opinions on than worship, right? It's too hot, it's too cold. The music's too slow, it's too fast, right? It's too old, it's too new. All of those kind of things, you know? And again, most of our congregation is great, but just historically, that's what we tend to focus on exclusively is the gathering, and it's important. But some of the most genuine worship services I have been in have been with our third world brothers and sisters, in which they make a joyful noise, and believe me, it's a noise, right, as they, they sing, but without instrumentations, without sound systems, without lights, without, you know, any of the accoutrements that we have today, and then somebody opens up the Word, and they preach, and people respond, 
And it's amazing to see that happen in every culture in the, on the earth and to happen in lots of different contexts as well. And so for us, we want to be sure that the word of God is rightly proclaimed and that we respond to God's revealed truth in worship because that's what worship is. It's revelation of God's truth and then the response in the moment with our voices, with our hearts, but certainly when we walk out of these doors with our very lives as well. Number four, the church is where baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances referred to in the New Testament, occur regularly as visible symbols of the gospel in the life of the church. Baptism is one of those stories that we repeat over and over again. And I don't know about you, but it gets me excited over and over again to hear the story of what God has done in somebody's life to save them and then to see that incredible word picture of the death of the old nature as we go under the water and the resurrection of the new identifying with Christ in a new life. We were talking about this in worship planning. Uh, sometimes we sing the song in Christ alone. Anybody love that song, that hymn, right? Just powerful, just a great statement of the gospel. Uh, and uh, our worship minister at the Brentwood campus has done this, and Luke's done it a couple times here. But when uh, you get to a certain point in that song, we pause and we have baptisms right in the middle of the song. And then we come back, and a lot of times we do the medley that, that leads us into the song, the, the hymn, The Solid Rock, that goes with it. And I'm just telling you, sitting here on the front row, if you want to hear a bunch of Baptists sing, baptize some people right in the middle of a song. And you guys, like, turn it up to 11 after that. It is, it is pretty fun. Because why? There's a natural response for those who are in Christ to say, you know what? Jesus was baptized as an example for us. I've identified with him in baptism. It's a reminder of my own testimony and story. And now I'm watching how the gospel is continuing to work as it has saved this person. And this person is saying, I'm identifying with Christ. And I'm identifying with this body of believers of people who follow Jesus. It's powerful every time. And by the way, if you haven't been baptized, shameless plug. I mentioned it on Sunday. We have our church-wide picnic and baptism service Sunday evening, the 29th. Would love, love to talk to you about being baptized uh, and what that's like. And then the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're supposed to celebrate that regularly. Again, the Bible doesn't prescribe how often we're to do it. Jesus just said it, right? Do this often in remembrance of me. And so in our church, the rhythm's about every five to six weeks. I know there's some people who would love to see us do it every week, um, you know. And so for us, that's just the rhythm that we have chosen to keep it unique and special when we do it. But we do it on a regular basis because it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. It's just one of those simple moments, a humbling moment for me as a pastor to look out over this congregation as I lead you through the taking of those elements and for you, and I can see it in your eyes and in your heart to remember what Christ went through for us as demonstrated in the bread and in the cup. So churches celebrate that on a regular basis. Number five, Brian spoke to this powerfully last week out of Ephesians 4. The church is marked by unity that comes from a shared confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and a shared life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you guys, but the enemy has always worked overtime to divide the church. He also works on the home, our marriages, by the way. Why? Because my conviction is the two conduits of the gospel are the church and the home, and Satan will do anything he can to divide those. So no, your most intense spiritual warfare will come around your marriage, your family, and church. And so Satan, especially in the last year, whether it's masks, whether it's vaccines, whether it's politics, whether it's race, the enemy has worked overtime 
to try to drive wedges in between God's people and divide us. We are called to be unified. We're not called to be uniform. Ephesians 4 is clear about that. That's a part of the brilliance of what happens. Remember Acts 2 in Pentecost. God pulled people together from different races, from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic levels. The church has always been unified but not uniform. That's a part of the brilliant beauty of the gospel is we are one but we are not all the same. And people should look at us and say, the only reason why we're gathered together, we have different experiences, different backgrounds, different interests. If we tried to order pizza right now, we'd probably have like 70 different orders because we like different things. But there's one thing that brings us together and that's Jesus. And that's more important than all the differences. And so we are called to have theological unity. There are foundational Christian truths that we must believe to be a part of the true church. The essentials of the gospel that we have to agree on, right? Or we're not Christians. And so that's part of where we have to unify around. There are what I would call second and third tier theological issues that we can agree to disagree on that are not gospel centric issues. And believe me, there's a time and a place to have those conversations, but we have to not allow those things to divide us so that we can be unified in Christ around the things that do save, around the things that do matter. Number two, relational unity. What does it mean to walk together in brotherly love, as the Bible tells us? What does it mean to walk together and live a life worthy of the calling that we've received? That's a commitment that takes work and that takes effort to relationally work together. I've told you guys, I learned early on as a pastor, my favorite phrase is this, help me understand. Help me understand. So that why? So that I can understand where you're coming from so that we can walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But part of the, the, the brilliance, right, the tactic, just di- diabolically brilliant on the part of the enemy has, to get, uh, has been to get us to use all of our energy on each other, tearing each other down, infighting with each other. So when it comes time to go out and push back the darkness, when it time, it goes, it's time to right, prevail against the gates of hell, we got nothing left. I had a theology professor who put it this way, right? We use all of our live ammunition on each other as Christians, and we only have water pistols left to go against the gates of hell. And it's a pretty profound thing when you think about it. And so all of our infighting, all of our arguing, all of that sideways energy that we expend needs to be used towards gospel ministry and reconciliation, relational unity, philosophical unity, agreeing, Right? That, hey, here's the way we're going to approach ministry. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, our methods may change, right? But our mission never changes because Jesus gave us that mission. Missional unity, speaking of which, what are our goal and objectives? What are we working towards as a church family? And organizational unity. That's important because why? We need to organize what God has entrusted to us so we are good stewards of what God has placed in our hands. And so organizational unity is important as well. Number six, the church is discipled and disciplined for holiness. Mark Dever is a pastor in Washington, D.C. says, the church is not a growing number of people. That's the way most people want to describe a healthy church, but it's rather a number of people growing. Important distinction because there is a difference between the two. Notice in Jesus's ministry, he would draw crowds. They were interested in him. And so especially when Jesus would feed people, when he would heal people, man, they came in droves. What happened when Jesus started teaching people? John 6 is the most profound example. He feeds the 5,000. They want to make him king. He starts teaching about his body and his blood, and they freak out, and they want to drive him off a cliff and kill him. I mean, the crowd will turn on you that fast. 
So we shouldn't assume just because the church has a large crowd that it is doing gospel ministry. There's a difference between the two or that it's a healthy church. Number seven, leaders use scripture to teach, correct, train, and equip believers to be a holy people who are continually growing in Christ's likeness. Second Timothy chapter three, right? Paul speaks to Timothy's protege and says, man, remember the truths that you have been taught since you were an infant. He's like, take that Bible and use it. And so he tells uh, Timothy, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So churches use scripture to accomplish that work. And then they use them to discipline, right? To guide God's people into holiness as a people together. Matthew chapter 18 is the passage where Jesus famously tells us what to do when it comes to church discipline. That if you have a problem with a brother or sister of Christ, if they have offended you and sinned against you, then you blast them on Facebook. Can I get an amen? Then you go to all of your buddies in Bible study and you talk about that person before you talk to them. Is that what it says in Matthew 18? No, it says you go to the person. And if they don't respond, then you do what? You go back to the elders, the leaders of the church, right? And you bring somebody mature with you. And then if they still don't respond, then what happens? Well, then you remove them from fellowship. But what's the goal of that? Is it to boot them out? No, it's in the hopes that they will realize what they miss and that they will come back. It says you treat them as an outsider. And by the way, how do we treat outsiders in the church of Jesus Christ? With grace and mercy, with open arms when they're ready, right, to come back. And ironically, this is the passage where we get this little verse that we love to quote, where two or more are gathered, you know, I am there also. We basically say that when nobody shows up to our meeting and it's like, you know, sparsely attended. Oh Lord, we're two or more gathered. We know you're here, right? To make ourselves feel better. But isn't it interesting that Jesus gave that promise in the context of church discipline? And I've experienced that as a pastor because it's gut-wrenching when you have to go through a process like that. It is emotionally draining. So what's Jesus saying? Because he's always with us, if we think about it, right? He's telling us there's an extra portion of my spirit with you when you do the hard work of confrontation and discipline, when you, Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love, right? I'm with you in a profound, why? Because Jesus cares about his church. And he wants it to be healthy and he wants it to be whole. And so churches, right, they are discipling using scriptures. We're growing into Christ's likeness and then we discipline as is needed. And just as you know, as a parent, right, the goal of discipline is not retribution against your kids. Although sometimes we feel like that, you know, would be appropriate. The goal is restoration. That's what we want to see. Number eight, the church obeys the great commandment to love. Jesus said, they will know you by your Christian t-shirts, Right? They will know you by that little fish thingy you put on the back of your car. I don't know about you, but I've personally chosen never to put one of those on my car because I'm not sure I want my driving to be my witness. Just saying, just being transparent as your pastor there, right? Got to be careful with that. So don't give people the one-way sign if you got that little, you know, so fish thingy on the back of your car. So you got that, what I'm talking about right there. Okay, so, but here's what we're called to do. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our family. We're to love our leaders. The Bible says that. You are to love fellow believers. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love strangers. And yes, this is the tough one. We are to love our enemies. Now, I don't have that love in my heart, but when I'm connected to the source of all love, guess what? It overflows from me. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, he says, it's ordinary to do things for people that you like. 
My paraphrase of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, but he said, it is out of the ordinary when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. You know why that's so radical? Because as you pray for someone who's persecuting you, you begin to see them the way God sees them. You begin to see the reason why they're treating you that way, the reason why they're rejecting you, the reason why they're giving you the hard time. And so love is supposed to mark us as God's people. And yet if we went and knocked on doors, again, back to the book of surveys that we talked about, unchristian earlier, unfortunately, I'm afraid that love would be one of the last words that would come out of people when they said, hey, what do you think about the church? Number nine, the church obeys the great commission to evangelize and to make disciples who multiply disciples. The church is an evangelistic community where the gospel of Jesus is constantly made visible through its proclamation of the gospel, the witness of the members' lives, and its spirit-empowered life of love. If you read the New Testament carefully, especially the gospels, you will see that Jesus proclaimed the message and he fed, ministered, and healed people. That as Jesus fed, ministered, and healed people, he proclaim the kingdom of God. What we have in our world today is churches that have gone to one extreme or the other. There are some churches that are all about the message, but they end up in an echo chamber because they never minister to the needs of their community and world. On the other hand, sadly, there are a lot of churches who are all about social justice. They're all about feeding the poor. They're all about all of these good acts, but they never get around to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and why they're there in the first place. Jesus did both. His followers have to do both. We are called to follow Jesus' example to us as we proclaim and live out the gospel. And we do that again in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we contextualize that mission. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, right, that's the passage where Paul talks about the fact that he is all things to all people. And so if we read that passage, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. Ironically, right, Paul had been a Jew. To those under the law, like one under the law, uh, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to be clear, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. So does that mean that Paul was a spiritual chameleon, right, who compromised in order to fit in with different groups of people? No. No. It's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is his preferences he was willing to set aside in order to connect with people for the sake of the gospel. And we have to be willing to do that as well. So as churches implement these characteristics, it's vital to distinguish between principle and methodology. Love the mission, but only like your methods, as one church leader has said. This is the essence of what it means to be a missional church. The methods serve the mission, not the other way around. And we just look at church history and we know that. So the way we're doing things today won't be the way we're doing things two years from now. The way we were doing things before COVID is not exactly the way that we're doing things now. Has our mission changed as God's people? Has our heart for the gospel changed? No, not a single bit. But we have the ability to see what God's doing and connect his timeless truth to changing times. So how does the church work? Quick recap of Acts 2 again. Revelation, what God did. <laughs> Response, what we do. Results what God gives. And I cannot emphasize this enough as a pastor. We are not responsible for the results. 
That's up to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But we're responsible for what? Faithfulness. To be faithful, to do what we're called to do as his church. When we do that, I believe, the church will grow. Why? Because healthy things grow. If you feed your kids, right, you give them three square meals a day, you should see my grocery bill with five kids in my house right now who are growing. I'm not joking. I ran into one of our church members at Costco who works there the other day, didn't know he worked there. We got in a conversation. I said, oh, you'll see a lot of me here. I got enough money. I spent enough money at Costco a couple of years ago. I'm not even joking. On my rebate check, I bought a lawn tractor with it, okay? That's how much food we go through in my family. And, you know, I try to use it like some people do airline miles and I put other stuff on it, you know, to be a good steward there. But, but just it's the case in point. When you feed something, what's healthy and what's good, it grows, When we feed God's church the word, when we prioritize the gospel, when we stay focused on the mission, when we don't get sidetracked and infighting with each other, and we don't get distracted by preferences and the things of this world, healthy things grow. It's the way God designed the world to work. And the church operates according to organizational principles. It's true. You know why? Because God put those principles into place for human flourishing. So whether you use them in a business or a church or whatever, a school, it's gonna work. But we need to be reminded The church is not just an organization, it is an organism, the living body of Christ. And so when we put these things into work, uh, into play, it happens. And so I love Stott's quote, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. But on the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. Man, I wish I could write like John Stott. If you can. N.T. Wright says this in his book, Simply Christian, and this is just a picture. And I I landed on this quote because I I really do. The church takes such a bad rap, but as a pastor, I see these type of things happening in our church here at Station Hill. He said, it's a place of welcome and laughter, of healing and hope, of friends and family and justice and new life. It's where the homeless drop by for a bowl of soup and the elderly stop by for a chat. It's where one group is working to help addicts and another's campaigning for global justice. It's where you will find people learning to pray, coming to faith, struggling with temptation, finding new purpose. It's where people bring their own small faith and discover in getting together with others to worship the one true God, that the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. To be clear, no church is like this all the time, but a remarkable number of churches are partly like that for quite a lot of the time. And so I think there is something really beautiful that happens when God's people get together. And so as I walk around, as my eyes and ears are open, I'm always in awe of what God's doing in and through you. And so we need to be sure that we define the church biblically, that we have a high, high view of the church because it was God's idea. It's the body of Christ. I think we need to evaluate these characteristics, right? To think about where we're strong as a church family and where we need to grow even more. And we need to redefine the word church for those who are hurt and disillusioned with the church. Uh, And so as a pastor, there's always, right, this interesting little phenomenon when I'm out in the community. One quick story, Tim's here. And so Tim O'Neill ran into him at Costco the other day as well, had his two little girls with him. By the way, his wife was serving at the well, so Tim was doing the grocery shopping. Well done, husband Tim, right? Uh, And so you never know when you're running into him. So we're near the frozen aisle, and we come around the corner, and his two little girls are in the cart. And they're what, Tim, how old? Two, four, five, and three, okay? And so they're in there. And so as we start to talk, and one of the girls looks at me, 
And she looks back at Tim and she looks at me and she says, Daddy, that's the guy we see on our TV. And immediately people at Costco begin to look at me like, who is this guy, right? From watching, watching services online during COVID. So that's kind of a fun moment for me, right? So, but the beauty, right, of what God does in his church is he brings people together and he works in and through us in a powerful way beyond what we can imagine or hope. And we need each other. And so I, I love that, that I get to connect with people in the community. And sometimes when I get in the community, Tim, props to you, because some people haven't been to a church in a while. Do you know what they do? They duck me, right? And they'll, oh, there's the pastor, down the aisle. And then one of my favorite games to play is to stroll to the other end of that aisle, right? And right about the time they get there, it's like, here I am. And then they begin to fumble. Oh, pastor, I'm sorry. We haven't been to church in a while, right? Like we've been sick and we've been to grandma's house and we had ball tournaments. And I'm sorry, we're coming next week, I promise. You know, and I, I'm always just like, relax. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not keeping scorecard. I want you to be at church because I want you to experience the worship of God's people. I want you to have biblical community. I want you to join us on mission. I've always wanted to pastor the kind of church that people really wanted to be here, right? That's what I want and long for you because I get to see firsthand. I get to have a front row seat as pastor to watch all the cool things that God's doing. And so on the back of this page here, I have just, you know, for our church, what does this look like? What's our foundation and focus? Well, of course, it's, it begins with scripture, that the Bible is true, God's true and perfect word. It's our roadmap for navigating the journey that we call life. We use the Baptist faith and message as kind of a summary of our statement of faith. If you wonder about that, you can Google it. I can send you that link. But we want that to be our foundation and focus. Our mission statement as we talk about, we want to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And our method right now, one of the methods that we've employed, and this is where we launched as a church family, is that we believe, right, that there was value in our regional campuses, reaching multiple communities, linking together to share our resources and be able to get into neighborhoods where we, we couldn't go alone. And so since, uh, you know, 2010, we were the first regional campus and we've added six more. The mission is the same at every campus. Every campus shares the same basic DNA through common mission, vision, and message. However, each campus has the own flexibility to contextualize that ministry to our unique community under the leadership of our pastoral staff. And so that's our methodology for right now. And we continue to look at what it means to have these campuses get healthy, to partner with other churches in Middle Tennessee and beyond, because we don't want to keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves. And we know that the local church is essential, healthy local churches, to helping people who are lost and searching connect, to hear the gospel, to grow, and then to be equipped to go back out with the gospel. So in response to God's leading, our vision, our picture of what we're trying to do right now is that we want to be a part of a disciples-making disciples movement. We want to see 10,000 of our people raised up to be disciple makers who will share this whole gospel with neighbors and the nations. Our goal in five years is to have half a million gospel conversations. That boils down to about two gospel conversations a month per church member. That's what it means. And that's what we can do together as God's people. And we want to create and resource a church multiplication movement. That's 100 healthy congregations throughout Middle Tennessee and beyond. So my friend Evan is sitting here, right, as one of our ministry residents. You guys are going to get to meet all five of them on Sunday in church. But uh, Evan Oxford is here. Uh, his brother and his wife used to be members here, and then they helped go launch Grove Hill. And so Evan's here because he wants to be a part of that movement. 
And so it's fun when God calls people to that task, when they join together and we can say, hey, we're better together than we are apart for what God wants to do in and through us. So what do we value? This is going to be our sermon series in October, by the way, the gospel first and always, that we're uniquely called, that we're all called to be participants and not just spectators, intentional innovation. In other words, we need to bring down barriers to the gospel in order to reach people with it, crossing cultures, multiplying ministries because multiplying matters. And so we call our strategy disciples multiplying disciples. And you'll see that pinwheel there at the bottom because that implies movement. All of these things work together. Gospel conversations or evangelism, if you want to call it that, where we celebrate what God's doing, we pray and we sin. Groups in which we grow, care, and equip one another. And then going as we launch out of our campuses to go to our neighbors and then ultimately to the nations as Jesus told us to in Acts 1-8. So I know that's a lot of territory, and there's a lot of other things we could have covered, Um, but I hope that roots you in a definition of what the church is biblically, and it helps you connect the dots between what we do as a church locally as well. And so our slider's been up for a while. Brian, we got about 10 minutes, 11 minutes to cover some questions. Brian, I saw the first question had already popped up before I even got up was, how are you doing? Grab your mic. You can see how technically slick I am. What microphone? Uh, I'm, I'm doing, doing well. Continue to pray for my health. Um, I continue to face some pretty significant challenges. And so if, if you can keep me in your prayers, I would, I would appreciate it. And that's one of the things that's, the church is called to do, do, is to right. pray for one pray another. For yeah. And so, yeah, if you could, if you could pray for me, I, I, would, I, I and my family would deeply appreciate it. Deeply appreciate it. Um, thank, and thank you. Thank you for your concern. And, and the second, uh, the one that keeps popping up and down. The one that says, I love this church. It teaches the truth. Amen. And by the way, both, both Jay and I sit under teaching in this church. And so we are all accountable theologically. It's critically important that even as we teach, that we sit under other teaching, right? Because it keeps us theologically oriented. It keeps us humble. It keeps us, you know, oriented toward Christ, if that that makes any sense. Uh, The first question was, what is church polity? Ah, yeah, church governance, how a right. church is organized and structured. Yep, um, and I love this question. Since the truth has always been found in God's word, why does this seem new to today's churches? It reminds me of Josiah, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's God's Good. people. He's, he's the king, and he finds the law. Do you know where, he find, you know where the law was lost? In the temple. <laughs> he found the law in the temple, Right? And that's what's at work today, right? We have lost the law within the church, right? We have lost God's grace within the church. And that's why all the things you quoted, the way the, the world sees us, is because we've lost Jesus. And that's one of the things that I love your preaching. I love that, as you said, I love the teaching methodology of this church because we take a high view of Scripture and, if, and we root things in Jesus Christ, and that's the way this changes. That's the way the world is saved, right? It's through Christ and Christ alone. I'm sorry. Yeah, you no, know, grass withers, flowers yeah. fade. The word of the Lord our God stands forever, Isaiah 48. Amen. I'm thankful for your teaching this week. Um, why don't we have tent revivals these days? <laughs> Methodologies, right. right? They change. And so I, just kind of just a little side note. 
I, I appreciate the intent of a lot of things, and I understand historically how these things came to be. Again, I grew up, you know, born, buttered, battered, and bruised Baptist, and so I've experienced all of the, you know, kind of traditional methodologies and those kind of things. But even the word revival strikes me a little odd because I don't think we get to tell the Holy Spirit when he's going to revive us, right? Amen. It's going to be during this week, right, in a tent <laughs> from 7 to 10 p.m. each night after some good old Southern gospel. Can I get an amen, right? You know, again, we, we just sometimes presume, and I know why we say these things, and again, the intentions are good there. But what's interesting is, is that if you really read about the history of revivals, the way they began was as people recovered the word of God. That's exactly right. And number two, as they did what? As they prayed. Amen. Every revival in the history of the world was predicated by a bunch of people who were desperate to see God move. And they began to get on their knees and cry out. And you don't hear that part of the story as often, right? But, but those are the two elements that are essential. And then what happens, the spirit begins to move in a powerful way because we are dependent on God. So, you know, we can't just assume, right, God's, God's going to show up when we plan it. And, and over time, that tradition, people wanted to hold on to it. And I get it. And I, I know people who were saved at tent revivals and, you know, saved at some. And I've preached, by the way, some tent revivals, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, in my time and some revival gatherings at churches and those kind of things. And it's always great to gather around God's word and to do those things. But yeah, it's a methodology that over time became less and less effective at reaching people. Right. Right. And, and, and the, if you watch how the Holy Spirit has worked through his people, it has changed over the centuries, over time. When you go back and look at church history and look at the way the gospel has played out over a couple thousand years, it's amazing to see the way things change, the, yeah. the way things move. Um, what are some of the characteristics of a healthy church that you would like to see us grow in? Hmm. You have, you had more time to think about it than I, I did. would. Well, I go back to that. What was on my heart was the desperation. <laughs> and we, you know, and, and we're going to talk about gospel conversations here in a couple of weeks, but, and you know, and people, I, I keep hearing that people want to talk about the gospel, but don't know how. And, I, and, and if that's true, the University of Alabama football team, which I'm going to say again, has the most amazing training program I've ever seen. Have you met an Alabama football fan? They can't help but talk about anything but Alabama. Any Roll Tides out there? Right. So, uh, right, yeah. So there we go. And so, Surprisingly right? low-key. Yeah, we're wow. very impressed. They buy cars that look in the same color as their football team. It's true. Right? They, buy, they wear clothes. If they see someone in an opposing, like an orange shirt, mm -hmm. right? They don't, us Vandy fans, we just appreciate the 14th of your bowl revenues. Thank you. <laughs> uh, just on behalf. But, you know, when they see a Tennessee shirt, right? They'll be go out of their way to talk about what they love, right? right. And what bothers me so much mm -hmm. is that we talk about what we love and mm -hmm. we rarely talk about Jesus. Oof. And so if you want to know what bothers me, and it bothers me about me too, by the way, this is not a, right? It, it, that's, it, it's a desperation for Christ. Yeah. And, that, and that's a good word. Let me, let me riff off of that a little bit more because I do think part, part of the, the amazing thing about our church, again, I grew up in a cornfield in Illinois. And so, you know, the people that we had in our churches, you know, they loved the Lord and they were humble. Man, I moved to Middle Tennessee and some of the most gifted people in the world are in our churches here. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable, the talent and, and, again, economic firepower. I mean, just, just all of the things. But what does that create? 
a sense of self-sufficiency. Mm. That by our methodology, by our great programs, by our, you know, like we know how to do church. We know how to grow a church. We know how to market a church. We know, you know, again, what's missing sometimes is that sense of desperation. That's right. Like, God, if you don't move, right, then <laughs> we're done. It's, yeah, it's all, it's all for naught. And so that's a good, that's a really good word uh, to think about what we need more of. Uh, I love, for instance, that we have a group of people who pray during our services for people Amen. to get saved and for lives to be changed. But here's part of what my heart struggles with a little bit. That group of people hasn't grown in about three years. It's about the same size uh, as it's been. Uh, And again, not calling anybody out, everybody's serving in different ways, those kind of roles. But that, to me, again, back to that idea about revival, right, is that desperation that comes in prayer when we get our knees and say, God, would you do what only you can do this morning? Would you open eyes? Would you, you know, redeem lives? Would you chain hearts? And and bring people, right? Witness to the community. Put, right, the church should be the most attractive institution in the world, Hmm. right? If we live like the most attractive person who ever ever lived was Jesus. Right, and not because he had a fancy, I don't know he had a fancy car, don't know that, right, certainly didn't have a big house, we know that scripturally, and right? the Bible says he wasn't even good looking, right? Exactly, there's nothing about him that would appeal to us. Physically. Physically, right? There's nothing physical mm-hmm. about him that would appeal to us, yep. right? But the gospel is that attractive. Mm-hmm. And when the gospel is shown in its truth and its light and its hope, right? Because that's what the world's desperate for. That's what, that's what, you know, Benjamin at Princeton, that's what he saw. The kids have no hope, right? Their only hope is material success, right? Their description of Christianity was unambitious (laughs) because they have no hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Our senior pastor at the Brentwood campus says it well. He says, the world's frustrated with the church, right? Not because we're too much like Jesus, but because we're too much like the world. That's right. And so in our attempts to fit in, our attempts to be relevant, we conform. And in doing so, the rest of the world says, well, the church is just give me what I can get anywhere else. Right. Versus what's distinct, what's set apart, what's unique. Good. Yeah. What's holy? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to keep Yeah, that's the word. That's, that's the word. word but that's de- and it's not just the set apart. It's, it's designated for a, holy, for a mm-hmm. God's yep. purpose. Good. Right? All the stuff in the temple was designated for God's purpose. It had a reason to be there. It was set apart and designated for a purpose. Sorry. Uh, and you guys figured out how to use Slido tonight. Yeah, well, and by the way, you guys asked, Benjamin and I talk about this when, when, he was, when he was back, that y'all asked the world's greatest questions. And as a teacher, that is incredibly encouraging. Sure. Okay, that, Jay and I find that unbelievably mm-hmm. encouraging, the, the, the questions you guys ask. All right, let's see. Sin is sin, and sooner or later the preaching has to go there. How can this not cause outside judgment against the church? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's as far as misunderstanding, yes. Right. We should expect lost people to, to not understand our message. Like, Paul was clear about that, right? It's, it's going to be a stumbling block to, you know, to the Jews. It's going to be a stumbling block to Gentiles. And one of the things we have to be careful of is to not round off what I would call the sharp edges of the gospel. But here, here is the problem, back to kind of the unchristian book, is what we want to offend is the gospel and not our opinions. Right. That's the problem. The world sees us, right, airing out our opinions, and that's what they find offensive. I want to, as a witness, as a pastor, I want the gospel to be what they grapple with, right. not my opinion about, you know, whatever the hot social issue is of the day. Now, do I have a biblical opinion on that? Am I glad to share it? Absolutely. Don't hear me wrong there. But the point being is, is that we want to be sure that what offends, what they're, what they're pierced by, just like the crowd in Acts, right. right, is the gospel. They were cut to the heart. You know, and not everybody was saved. 
3,000 were saved, but not everybody was saved. And so, yes, we will often be misrepresented, mischaracterized. We should expect that. The world will not understand this. Jesus said the world will hate us. So we need to be prepared you know, to bear that as well. But we want it to hate us for the right reasons, and that's because it's the gospel that they're stumbling over, the gospel that offends them, and not our preferences or our opinions. Yeah, as Benjamin says, be sure they're offended by Jesus and not you being a jerk. <laughs> that's great. That's his shorthand for He has that. such a great way. He has such a it's very, very I want that on a t-shirt. That's exactly. Don't be a jerk that's for good. Jesus. All right, we got about a minute more. Yeah. Any, any um, other... A couple of things that have to would take longer answers. Let's see. Um, Speaking of church unity, I don't want to offend our preschool workers. Exactly. So. Um, if we believe Jesus, this is a great one to end on. If we believe Jesus is coming back, why is it so hard to tell people? Hmm. If re, if reality is the way, if if we and it's it's was it Penn that said you know oh, yeah. you, you know, when Jesus if how if you really believe hell is what it is, how can you not do everything to desperately Plead with me, plead with me, right, to become a Christian. Yeah. If this is Penn really, and Teller, the entertainer. Yeah. And he's yeah. a loudmouth atheist. And yeah. he calls himself a loudmouth. That's not my description. He calls himself a loudmouth yeah. atheist. But I think he said, yeah, his quote was, how bad yeah. do you have, you have to, to hate, hate me, me right. to not share with me right, right. what said, you really I, believe? If I were going to get hit by a bus, you would try to get me out of the way of the bus. This is much worse than a bus. Yeah. Unless you don't really believe that. Yeah. And, and again, boy, there's multiple angles to come at that with. One of those is, is that we're not convinced, I think, ourselves sometimes. Right. Mm. And that's why we need to be in the Word, is to be more certain, more confident that what the Bible says is true. And I, I don't know about you guys, but Jesus was pretty clear that as we get closer to the end, the labor pains become more intense. Anybody watch the news this week? Yep. Does anybody have to be convinced? Yeah. You know? But what's our proper response to that? To throw up our hands in despair, world's going to hell in a handbasket, and we're just going to hang on until Jesus returns? No, no. urgency. <laughs> right. That's why Jesus told his disciples, I'm not going to tell you the day and the hour. Right. Because you need to be about the business of the kingdom. You leave that stuff up to me, but you live every day as if Jesus could return tomorrow. Martin Luther, I live this day in light of that day. Amen. And so that's to be our focus. But we, again, we've lost that. And especially in the West, we're distracted. Yeah. Our smartphones, our entertainment, all of these things, right, begin to take priority over the urgency of, of you know, sharing Christ. Well, you get this, I'm too busy. It's like, yeah. no, no, you have the same amount of time everybody else does. That's right. Yep. What you choose is what to focus on. Yep. What you choose is how to allocate. Yeah. Right? So you are not too busy, right? You just prioritize something else over things that you, you may have, right? Seek the kingdom first. Yeah. Right? And if you do that, everything else falls into place. And if you don't do that, nothing will. Right? Yeah, it's a corollary to that. Right? Strong. If you don't do that, nothing will. That is strong. Nothing will. You mind if I close us in prayer? No, please do. All right, Father, Thank you. Father God, we are thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your church. Father, man, uh, just, just thankful that, we, that you let us have each other. That we, when we know we walk with Christ, we know that God is always with us. But sometimes, you know, to see it with skin on, to, to see that just the ministry of presence... Right, just to be with your people and sing and hear your word proclaimed. Father, it, it, it's just so encouraging to our hearts and, and so healthy for our souls. And so, Father, let us be the church in your power and in your strength and to your glory. Mm -hmm. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you all.